You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. A reading from Luke, chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The word of the Lord. Not a hair of our head will perish, huh, Jesus? Thanks. That verse is more reassuring to some of us than others, I'm sure. You all may be seated this morning. So we are in the final series here of this, uh, what's becoming just a very precious memorable series for me personally. Uh, it's, it's my heart. It's my heart on what I feel has been the strength of my walk with the Lord and what is going to be the strength of our life moving forward um, as I proceed and continue in the ordination process that God has. The things that matter the most are what we build as foundational. And so generosity, witnessing, learning, Today, mystery, our, our, our devotional lives, I mean, these things are paramount to us eating well for the long journey that is ahead. I want to say that as a priest, a priest, when it's different than all of us being priests and priestesses in the world, as it says in Revelation, we're all a kingdom of priests. The reason why the church will house a priest is so that whenever a person is presiding in a room filled with symbols. He or she themselves become broken symbols over the things that they're presiding over. So when there's a baptismal font, when there's a table with chalice and juice and bread, whenever there's anointing oil or the things that the church has given us over the years to recognize that God's power works mightily through marriage, through what is said at a funeral service, through the laying on of hands, through oil. These are all broken symbols to what we know God is ultimately doing above and beyond those things. Amen? God is not oil, but we use oil because oil is a lot like him. He gets everywhere and you can't quite get him off. Amen? So when I'm presiding over broken symbols, I myself become a broken symbol. So everybody knows who they're supposed to be when they leave here. And so that's why we have priests. And the goal is to teach us to be this everywhere we go. And that's the job of a pastor. And so I have always felt very called to both because I want to stand as a broken symbol. I think everybody here knows me enough to know I have no problem talking about where I'm broken as much as I possibly can because you need to see Jesus in what me and my family get right and you need to see Jesus in how he works mightily 99.5% of the time when we're getting things wrong. It's through brokenness that we see the life of Christ manifest the most and in order to 
bring everybody into that, it's the work of a pastor. And so this, this, dual, this, this dual vocation of priest and pastor means a great deal to me. How many know the verse? And maybe you can finish it for me. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many... Yes, that's a confusing statement, no? Like, Jesus, your Father's house must be big if in it are many mansions. Like, I'd like to see that on MTV Cribs, no? That'd be pretty impressive. You know, it wouldn't be impressive, though, because whenever you walked into that room, that, that house that's housed with mansions, and he showed you those mansions, the camera would go in there all cool, and Jesus would say, here's, here's room number one, and it would look like Springfield Baptist and Beacon. And say, well, here's room number two. You got to see this one, and it would look a lot like New, Church, uh, New Vision Church of Deliverance. And he'd show you another one. It would look a lot like St. Joachim's. He'd show you another one that I would assume for me personally would be the, most, the, the coolest room in the house, and it would be Salem Tabernacle Fair. Is that fair? That's actually terrible what I just did. That was a test, and you failed. God's house is filled with many rooms or many mansions, and I believe on this side of eternity, how, how, how we read that is that every local church is a room in this gigantic house called the church. And I've been ordained in this room. This room has set their approval. We call this guy pastor. And what I'm doing is I also want, in, in the communion of evangelical and Episcopal churches, I also want them to ordain me so that I know I'm not just ordained in this one room, but I'm ordained in the house that houses the rooms. And here's one of the things that I love about it. When, when you get ordained into a communion or a denomination, I prefer the communion of evangelical and Episcopal churches because it carries in it the worship styles of many different denominations, where a denomination says you have to worship this way. The communion that I'm getting ordained in says you can worship in a myriad of ways. That's the point of our denomination is to get this whole thing to look, have some texture, to have some difference to it. So every church in the communion worships very differently. Again, not as cool as we do, but I shouldn't have said that, and this time don't clap. But it's pretty good. It's pretty good what we do. If I bump into one of you at the diner, I'll know that I'm your pastor. But when the church in the largest sense, ordains you. And I walk into the diner, and there's somebody there who doesn't go to church. They don't know that I'm their pastor. They don't know that the church is there praying for them and interceding for them. And I, I think both of those are very important. So that's why I'm going through with this. And again, the CEC is 25 years old. It's a mustard seed. I believe in my gut that there's more for it than going on right now. But I, I feel home here. And so that, that's, my final, that's my final statement about this whole thing. What I feel like is happening next Sunday night is I'm doing the next thing that God's told me to do to the best of my ability. And so I'm glad that you're all going to be here to share it with me. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now to the very encouraging text that was read today about how Jesus is saying, I'm going to come back, but not before utter destruction takes place first. Uh, we should talk about that, Jesus. I wish you would do that differently. We've been talking about devotional life, generosity, and how the two of them together is how we witness. We witness when we devote ourselves to God personally. We witness when we devote ourselves to God publicly. And when we take that devotion and we're willing to live it out at a cost, which is generosity, we get witnessing. That's how we witness. A public display of affection in front of everybody. And then that is multiplied by our willingness to never think we know everything there is to know, which is what we talked about last week. And so our whole witness, our, our, the power of our witness is multiplied when we realize that, and you're going to, halfway through this message, we're going to have a little bit of a moment, and you're going to see very clearly how somebody called me this week and asked me a question and it made me sit down and say, here's the deal. You do most of the talking in this one. I have to learn something here. That's what increases our witness in a lot of ways. All of this is shrouded and encased in mystery. The Bible says in Mark, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps Night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. That's what everything we do is wrapped in mystery. 
we, we do this thing that to the best of our ability, we sing, we clap, we jump, we dance, we lay down, we bring money, we put it on the altar, we do all this stuff, and we, we say, God, somehow this has to work, and we don't know how, we're just trusting that you're going to make it work, amen? How many parents do I have in the room? When you get it right, is it surprising? <laughs> like, gosh, amazing. I don't know how. It's God. That's the answer. He, he makes it happen. He, he's shrouded in mystery. And here's the reality. In a world where we're taught to come to every situation with our mind made up, the gospel says, don't you dare do that. Don't approach any situation already with your mind made up. Walk into situations, conversations, moments, theologies, teachings, ordination services, worship services. You go through thing A with your kid. Then the exact same thing happens the next day. But I'm telling you, because it's the next day, it is not the exact same thing. It feels like the exact same thing. But don't handle it like you handled it yesterday because yesterday is gone and we have today. Right? We have to go into all situations, not with our mind made up, but willing to hear something new from the Holy Spirit. And this is what God says in Proverbs. This is a very famous proverb, Proverbs 25.2. And this is annoying, but it's good. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. So this is what God does. This is why we wrap presents for Christmas morning. Because we're made by a God who likes to conceal things so his children can open them. This is why when I say, Sophia, I bet you can't hide from me. She runs around a corner and literally you can hear her squealing like, oh. <laughs> There's something engaging about hiding and revealing that is the romance of the life that we live. Imagine putting presents under a tree that are all already open. Horrible. God is the reason why we do those things. And yet we approach every gift of life like we already know what it is and don't need to open it. Your spouse is a gift. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> Your spouse is a gift. Don't wake up in the morning like you know them. You don't. You knew them yesterday. You don't know them today. Today's a new day. Get to know them again. It's fun. It's fun. We could stay here all day. It's fun. One of my favorite things about preaching is pausing for a minute when there's just a lot of tension and just feeling it. Your job isn't the same tomorrow like it was on Friday when you left it. Everything, no two pizzas are alike. Praise the Lord Jesus. Like, <laughs> if they were, the first one I would have eaten would have been the best one. But they're all the best one because they're all different and better than the rest. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Here's a mystery time. Sophia Cavaletti, a noted biblical scholar, specifically engaged in teaching our young children about the mysteries of the church. She says this, our experience of the mystery of time is very similar to the experience of the mystery of life itself. Regarding both time and life, we can say, in some sense, it is mine because I'm living it. But we must also say, it doesn't belong to me. It escapes my grasp. It is beyond me. Time is what Jesus is talking about in this verse about you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet, and it's going to get really bad, but these are just birth pangs. The end is not yet. All he's doing here is he's talking about time. He's saying you're going to go through a process, and the whole process is the process of my return, but it's going to be stretched out over time. And when it comes to time, we say that time is ours because you're living it right now. Right now, we're giving time to what we're doing. But at the same time, we know that time isn't ours because it, if it belonged to me, I'd have 28 hours in a day. If it belonged to me, my age would slow down just a little bit. If it belonged to me, I would, I would, I would take Sophia at age 30 for another 25 years and then let her turn four. And never let her turn 13 and 16 and 18 and 21. 
Just, you know what I'm saying? Time belongs to us because we experience it, but it doesn't belong to us because we can't stop it. It gives us great gifts. It gave us today. We're here right now because of time. But it's also taking this moment away. It belongs to us, and yet it doesn't. What does Jesus say in Luke 21, 5 through 7? It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus says, As for these things that you see, the day will come when they won't be there anymore. And they asked him, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things will take place? What are they saying? They're saying, Jesus, look at how beautiful these permanent fixtures are. And Jesus says, I just want you to know, there is no such thing as a permanent fixture. You're loving the present moment, but it's not permanent. Now, when you're looking at something beautiful, that's terrible. But what about the person who's saying, look at the suffering I'm going through, Jesus. It's ugly. And Jesus says, it's not permanent. So when it, we pick and choose, well, when it comes to good stuff, we want it to remain. But let me say this. The very best of what you see in this world is so far inferior to the very best that God has for us. Everything bad we do will need to be restored. Can I get a witness? Everything good we do is as in need of restoration as the bad we do because even our righteousness is as filthy rags for all my classic Pentecostals in the house. Everything we do is in desperate need of God's hand to touch it and restore it. The good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, it is all going to be called up into the life of God. That's our hope against hope, is that even the best of what I see, if the very best of what I see is the final best that God has, that's not great. There has to be something more than even the best that I see. Which is why Jesus says, they are beautiful stones, aren't they? Yes. They're amazing. Yes. How did we do this? I don't know. This is amazing. Jesus, you're getting weird now. Oh my God, I love these stones. Jesus, stop talking about it. I wish I didn't bring up the stones now. They're all going to get thrown down. And it will turn out that the temple that is the most beautiful is my body because it is the only permanent fixture as everybody's about to find out on the third day. So what does he say is going to happen in between this time where the beautiful and the ugly, the, the good and the evil have an expiration date on them, and then there's going to be a day when everything is restored? What happens in between? Jesus, give us some good, good news of what happens in between. And when you hear of wars and tumults, who uses that word anymore? We had a, my wife and I, we had, an, we had a tumult today. <laughs> Do not be terrified. Listen to this. For these things must fir first take place but the end will not be at once. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. All the evil, we're not going to preach a sermon to explain that because there isn't one. But while it's being stretched out, and while all of these bad things are happening, or while all of these good things are happening that don't seem to stick around for very long, Your job, church, is to stand in the temporal reality of the good and the bad and say, here's my witness. This is not going to have the final say. We are here to sit with those dealing with injustice and say, this is not the end. We are here to sit with those who have suffered tragic loss and say, this is not the end. We baptize people who are in failing, broken flesh. And we baptize them and raise them to say that even though this flesh is going to die, that is not the end. We celebrate Easter every year to tell the world, this is not the end. But we also, in our very privileged, very first world American society, need to also witness to people and say, that beautiful house you have, that's not the end. 
that beautiful car you're driving. That's not the end. A Christianity, and it has been for a long time, that promotes material blessing as a sign of God's favor needs to be told to shut its mouth. That is not the end. It is not. That also will perish. That also will fall apart. I have finally made it. No, you haven't. The suffering need to be told. This is not the end. Those who are at ease in Zion, for those of you who love when I use scripture to say all of my crazy points, need to be told your ease is not the end. Everything that's making you comfortable is going to perish. And everything that's making you uncomfortable is going to perish. And everything that's making you happy in your life that you got the car and you got the spouse and you got the kids that actually behave, which is a lie from the pit of hell. And you have, you know, the house that doesn't fall apart and all this kind of stuff. Will you have all that? It is not the end. It's going to perish. The disciples are standing there with the resurrected Christ. And they ask him a question we all would ask him. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? A few years ago, you told us not one stone will be left unturned. There's going to be wars and tumults, whatever they are, and rumors of wars and all this stuff. And now they're looking at the resurrected Jesus, and they're saying, is this when? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But look at this. But if you're willing to let go of needing to know when... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to do what? To be my witnesses. If all we want, and just think, because it's so easy to poke fun at it, and it's not a straw man, it's demonic. But how many times have you heard a minister predict the end of the world? And how many times have they been right? Unless I'm missing something, never once. All of that nonsense is the very thing Jesus told us not to do. Don't sit around trying to find out when. Pause a couple thousand years. The moon's going to turn red and there's going to be a constellation. And then it's going to be the end of the world. It's going to be on this day at this time. Been wrong every time. Why? Because God's not going to tell you. Why? Because Jesus doesn't know. And why doesn't Jesus know? Jesus can know. Why doesn't he know? Here's why Jesus doesn't know. Because he's showing us that a life that is thriving is a life that doesn't need to know. I just need to know what she's saying about me. Nope. I just need to know what they're thinking about me. Nope. I know, I know some of my friends are backstabbing me a little bit. I know they're talking. I need to know if they are. Nope. If Jesus doesn't need to know when he is going to fulfill the earth... You don't need to know what your friend is saying about you. Learn to be content not knowing because maybe when you let go of knowing, you'll be received with power to witness to people who don't know if their son is going to make it through the terminal cancer that they're in. Forget about what your friend is saying. Pull yourself out of trivialities. What does Paul say to Timothy? Don't get entangled in those civilian pursuits. Use the little things that we wish we just knew. I just need to know. I just need to know. Use that to fast the need to know. So when it comes to, is my son going to live? And you say, I don't know. You can say, but God is going to give me power to talk to this person about what they don't know. That's what we're here for. We're here to say that if he gets healed or if he dies, there's still something better coming than both. Because the best that will happen is he'll be healed. But in the eschaton, he'll be cured. Cured is that sickness can't touch me anymore. Healed is I'm better. Cured is that I can't get sick anymore. We will have healings in this life, but we're going to be cured in the life to come. The prophet Joel says... God says through the prophet Joel, I will restore to you the years. Funny term, huh? Not, I will restore to you the children that the enemy has devoured. Not, I will restore to you the land that the swarming locust has eaten. I will restore to you time. Yeah. 
time. It's 11.13. I have so much longer to go. You're all going to be thinking about time in like 10 minutes. How many moments have you felt like you've wanted to say, I've wasted my time? And get it out of the trivial for a minute. I parented this boy for 27 years. And they walked away from all of it. I wasted my time. I walked with the Lord and did everything they told me to do. And look where it got me. My life has gotten so much worse. I must have wasted my time. I worked at that company and gave them everything I had. And in the days before Christmas, I lose my job. I've wasted my time. I took care of that car the best I could. And at a red light, somebody just plows into the back of my car. And I've wasted. What was the point of all that hard work? God is going to restore every moment that you've ever said, I've wasted my time. He's restoring the things that time takes away. One of my good friends said, you know, we can kind of restore health to ourselves. We can just stop eating terrible. We can kind of restore money to ourselves. We can stop spending it like it's like the new fad is just to spend money. Have you heard what they did in China, that singles day? where everybody's supposed to buy themselves a gift, and that one, uh, that there's one particular company in China made like a trillion dollars in one day because everybody bought themselves something. <laughs> a, that's genius. <laughs> and B, oh my God, a trillion dollars in one day? We just spend, spend, spend. Well, we can restore money to ourselves. Stop doing that. Don't treat yourself. <laughs> treat somebody else or treat your savings account to money it desperately wants. <laughs> but you can't restore time. There is no treadmill that can help you get time back. I will restore to you the years, not just the events of those years, but I will make it so that time has never taken anything from you. Saints, this is what we're supposed to be living as if we know this is what's going to happen. We live in a world that is obsessed with the stones on the temple saying we finally got it the exact way we want it. And they're so obsessed. And I'm saying they, tongue in cheek, me, you, all of us are so obsessed with getting the most out of this life. We were never called to get the most out of this life. This life is the life that is meant to be the training ground and the prophetic utterance of a life that is coming where we won't get the most out of it, we'll be given the most. The whole phrase we need to get is our problem to begin with. We need to receive the most. I can't get it. It's elusive. Jesus is the most. He can give. God says, here's my name. I am Alpha and Omega. That's his name. I am time. When he gives himself, he's giving time. Because he is time. He's time walking around. That's another reason why he said, I don't know the day or hour. Because I don't talk like that. I'm coming back to all the days and to all the hours not in them, to them. So what do we do, pastor? It's so confusing. Good. That's great. We had fun talking about that. What am I leaving with today? First, we're going to put up an icon. Showed this last week. Okay. Now, I want to say something to everybody. Are we friends? About 60% of you said yes, I'll take it. I have low standards. I'm glad. Somebody called me this week. I showed this picture. This was given to me as a gift. I have the hard copy of it right there. It was given to me as a gift for my ordination. It's Christ the King, a famous Mediterranean Greek icon. And I'm getting ordained on Christ the King Day, and this is the Greek picture of what that day represents to a Greek person. It's going to get worse right now. I had somebody call me and say, Pastor, text me, hey, Pastor, 
I really need to ask you a question. Is it okay if I ask you? And I said, sure. They text me. And right away I realized, wow, I'm not going to text back. I need to pick up the phone and call. This is too big for emailing or texting. This has to be ear-to-ear or face-to-face. Discern that in your life, please. The text read, and I'm paraphrasing, as a black woman in your church who loves you and cares about you, I got a little nervous when you put up a picture of white Jesus. And if you put up a picture of black Jesus, I probably would have gotten annoyed with you too. I'm like, I need to call you. So I want to say this. This is part of what I'm talking about. There are things that have happened in time that this time won't restore, but it doesn't mean we don't try. And I want you all to know, if you forget everything from today, that if you ever have an issue on this level of gender or race or sexuality or anything like that, the hot button stuff, I need you to know, I don't just want you to know, I need you to know, I pray that you know, that God has given me two ears and one mouth because my number one job is to listen twice as much as I speak. And I speak a lot. And I'm willing to listen to you, hear you, and want you to feel comfortable enough, as this woman did, to call me. I'm not going to be defensive. There are things I just need to shut up and listen to. And I want you to know I will, and it will be taken very seriously and very prayerfully. And it's not about a debate. It's about truly listening to where you're coming from. So I love the fact that there's somebody in the church who knew they could do that. That means the kingdom of God is breaking in on us in every conceivable way. I'm going to say this again. I want you to know that it is great that a black woman in this church could call her white pastor and say, can you sit down for a second? I need to talk to you. The fact that she would feel comfortable to do that in this house is a testament to the kingdom of God. We have a very long and robust and elaborate conversation that ended very, very well. And I assured her, there are tons, no picture of Jesus is ever going to look like Jesus. And the reality is this. The fear for many in this room, not everybody, but many in this room, is that depictions of white people in authoritative priestly robes does conjure up some fear for people in this room. And I want to say two things, but I want to say this one first. The first thing I want to say is this. Anyone who subscribes to the ideals of white supremacy needs this icon in their life of white Jesus. They need it. Why? Because here's what this picture is saying. What makes me royal is that I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. White supremacy makes its money by saying what makes me royal is my domination. What makes me royal is the ability that I can lord things over people. What makes me loyal, royal is my land. What makes me royal is my privilege. What makes me royal is the fact that we've been here longer, which is dumb. What makes me royal is all, are all of these things. And here's what Jesus is saying. What makes you royal is a towel and a cross. So shut up. What makes you royal is your ability to get on your knees and wipe the poop off of people that you hate. That's what makes you royal in the kingdom of God. So you can plug whatever white supremacist face you want to plug onto that picture. They need this picture. They need it. Because this picture says royalty isn't what you've made it. It's something of an altogether different sort. But I also want to say this. We have to plug every different, not just shade and color into this picture. But we need to ask ourselves, as a Democrat... What does it mean that my power comes through serving the least of these? As a Republican, what does it mean that my power comes through nail-scarred hands? I told you there's going to be some tense-filled silence. This is good. Whatever the thing is that you inhabit, that you want to use to gain power... Ask yourself, how do I exercise who I am, the party I subscribe to, the gender I'm in, the color that God gave me? How do I use it to say that the power of it comes through serving? Serving the least of these or serving my enemy? 
what is one of the most famous lines, and you know I don't do this to tokenize this as an important moment, but what is one of the most famous phrases, one of the most famous scriptures that Martin Luther King Jr. ever said, justice will roll down. Why? Because justice only can roll down. Because justice isn't for the elite. It's meant to roll down. That's what it's meant to do. That's what this picture is saying. Plug whatever shade, whatever color, whatever party, donkeys, dinosaurs, whatever the picture of the party is, whatever it is, tea party, whatever you want. Plug it all into there and say, what does it mean that power comes from nail-scarred hands? That's the Advent message. What does it mean that the master of the universe shows up as an infant that needs to be breastfed? That's the beginning of God saying, you want to see what power looks like? Power, ultimate power, supreme power, looks like a suckling infant. And then it's going to look like a rejected man. And then it's going to look like a crucified man. And then, and this is one of my favorite moments in the entire Bible, John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation hears behind him a lion. Well, lion represents, I'll tear you up. Lion represents, I'm the king of the jungle. Lion represents, I'm powerful because I can devour. And he hears a lion, and when he turns, he sees a lamb. Because Jesus is saying there's a new way to be lion. And it's not roaring or tearing or devouring. It's laying down your life. There's a new way to be king of the jungle. I just wanted to say all that. I'm going to move on. Do you, 1124, do you realize how unique what just happened and what is happening here is? I, here's another thing I want to be able to say. This is just, it's, it's important enough to say it. There is no statement, no sentence, no clever note in a sermon that's ever going to undo or, or answer for everything that people feel. Part of what I loved about this conversation I had was the, the person said to me, you know, you could... You could choose black people for leadership, and I might get mad. You could choose no black people for leadership, and I'm going to get mad. And I said, um, she said, I'm sorry, Pastor. It feels like it's, I don't know what to tell you. And I said, here's what I, here's what I want to tell you. You never need to resolve that. I just need to know it. And we're going to carry that together for a long time. There isn't an answer for that. I'm not going to say you're wrong because I don't know what it's like to be you. We're just going to hold that together in prayer over the years, over the generations. We're just going to hold that. It's not answering it. It's holding it together. It's knowing that it exists in the heart and mind of someone, and that's enough to say we got to hold that together. But I don't want you to feel bad. That she kept saying, Pastor, I'm so, this, is, this is horrible. No, it's not. You're just telling me what it's like to be you. And I love that you can tell me that. And we're just going to hold it together. And we're going to work through together everything that happens. I'm going to do my best to be aware, to listen, to, to work as best I possibly can. And I'm going to trip up and mess up and so are you. But we're going to hold this together. Why? Because all the pain and the sorrow and the anguish that comes from this, the church is here to say that is not the end. So all we can do is with tiny little baby steps have these conversations and walk like this to the future that Jesus has. That's all we can do. We're not going to resolve it. We're just going to hold it together. Can I pray for a minute? Father God, I ask that this quick moment in the service would be a mustard seed. That that phone call that was made to me bravely and courageously this week would be a mustard seed. And that you would allow us to not avoid politics, but to enter them as the lamb. That we wouldn't avoid social justice issues, but we would enter them with meekness and humility, with ears to hear, being quick to hear and slow to speak. Pray, Heavenly Father, that this room would be a hub for a racial transformation in the Hudson Valley, in Beacon, in the suburbs, especially in the kingdom of God everywhere on this earth. That we would be able to together name and call out what needs to be named and call out 
and work, as Paul would say, with all of your energy to establish change. In your name we pray. Amen. Are we good? So next year, starting in December, we're going to be going through the whole church year, and we're going to be talking about what each season of the year means. And I just, I'll do this quickly uh, because that was important. And I want to say this. What the church has done is the church has given us a cycle that teaches us how to live in the time where we're waiting for the time. How do we live rightly in this time where we're waiting for a better time? How do we do that? It starts with Advent. And Advent is God with us. Advent and Christmas is God with us. To a world where God seems to be absent. Advent and Christmas is where the church learns that God is with us in a world where it seems like he's absent. So we can go out there and show them that God is with them in a world where God feels absent. So look what Jesus says. We're going to keep using this verse for the rest of the time. Look what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand. Just remember that verse. I will give you wisdom that your enemies will not be able to withstand. What is he saying, number one? In this tribulation, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you things, which means I'm going to be with you. So Advent is the celebration that in a world where God seems to be absent, he's actually not. We learn that here, and then we give it freely there. And this is super simple, but we move then into Lent and Easter, which is God for us. Easter is God for us, not just, he's saying, I'm not just with you, I'm so for you, I'm giving my entire life for you. I'm for you in a world where God seems to be against us. What does he say? In the hate of the world, I will give you wisdom that your enemies will not be able to withstand. I'm going to give you something that you will be able to use to bring justice. I'm for you. That's why I'm going to be giving. Our job is to realize in this room with each other, personally in our relationships here, that we are for each other. And when we strengthen that in here, we can leave here and be for them. Advent is us learning together that God is with us, never leaving us, never forsaking us. Lent and Easter is about us realizing that God is for us in here so we can show them that God is for them out there. Absence is not the end. Evil is not the end. And then we go to Pentecost. Can I get a witness from Pentecost? Anybody? God in us. Advent is God with us. Lent and Easter is God for us. Pentecost is God in us. In a world where people think God is disappointed in them. He's not disappointed in you. He's just in you. I will give you wisdom that your enemies will not be able to withstand. That shows that he's with us. Because he's giving us something. It shows that he's for us because our enemies won't be able to withstand it. But it also shows that he's in us because I'm going to give you wisdom, which is not a thing I can hold in my hand. It's something that happens in my heart. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm in you. In a world that feels like God is only disappointed, we say he's not disappointed in you. He's in you with fire. He's in you with a word. He's in you with a gift. He's in you with a prophetic tongue. He's in you with a sermon. He's in you with a song. He's in you with a poem. He's in you with a dance. He's in you with a spoken word. I could keep going. He's in you with all of these beautiful things that you can use to then express him to other people. But he's not disappointed in you. He's excited in you. And then, ordinary time. God through us. Advent is God with us. Lent and Easter is God for us. Pentecost is God in us. And then the majority of the church year is God through us in a world where people feel useless. 
not only is he with you, that's not enough. It's not enough to just say I'm with you if I'm not going to do anything to help you while I'm with you. That's even worse, actually. Like, I'll, I'll be with you to protect you, and then somebody jumps you, and I'm like, I'm with you. That's not helpful. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm in you, and now I want to execute my life through you is what Jesus is saying. I want your life to become my life. I want you to walk so closely with me that when I step, you take a step that your life is my life, and my life is your life. So much that church would say that Paul would say the church is the body of Christ himself. I have so much for you that I want to move my life through you. You're not useless. And you're not useful either to God. He's in love with you. He wants to cooperate with you. He wants to partner with you. We're not useful to him because like we said a few weeks ago, if I'm useful to him like a bad pair of sneakers, once I wear out, I'll be done. That's not God. You're not useful. He's in love with you. We're not useful at all. That's why I can mess up one day and do amazing things the next day and God is loving me all the same because I'm not useful. I'm more than that. I'm a participant with him. I don't feel resolved right now. (laughs) And that's because we have one more day in the church year. This sermon doesn't end. This is a big fat comma right now at the end of this message right here. What in the world do we gather for if not to learn in here that this is where tensions have to break down and they need to be worked through in here. They will never be worked through out there if they can't be worked through in the house of God. We're here to learn that God is with us when he feels absent. We're here to realize that God is for us when he feels like he's against us. We're here to realize that he's in us when we feel like he's disappointed. And we're here to realize that he works through us when we feel like we're utterly damaged goods and useless. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. If you asked God right now, what do we do? He would say, bring me bread and bring me juice. Break it. And then let me feed you with it. Why? Because coming to brokenness is the way that we come to the way that God is interacting with the world as it stands right now. It's broken. It's fragmented. It's spilled, which is why we have tensions injustices, bad histories, you name it. But he's saying, what I want you to do, church, is I want you to take the brokenness of the world in that bread, and when you all eat it, it becomes one loaf again. I want you to take this spilled juice, and when you all drink of it, it connects to the vine again. And in the church is the primary evidence that justice will roll down like a waterfall. And we're the way. We are the waterfall. We need to be looking down. Not up where things are elitist, but down where things are forgotten and cast aside and left alone. If you can name it that it's undeserving, then you've just named the very thing you need to bless. Here's why this person doesn't deserve blessing. If you can name it and it's true, it's the very thing that qualifies them to need justice to roll down. So, Father God, we pray that you would look at this bread and this cup. And on the night when you were betrayed, I pray that, God, there's people in here who know that when they wake up in the morning, they're going to be betrayed. They wake up in a world that's more difficult for them than it is for other people. They wake up in a world where there's the betrayer right at hand. There's a, they wake up in a world where they're going to have to work extra hard to get things that other people get by hardly working. 
But I pray that they would hear you that on the night when you were betrayed, you offered yourself. I also pray that the other side would see you on the night when you were betrayed, the side that has the power, the side that has the wealth, the side that wakes up in a world that's easy to wake up in. That they would see, that I would see, that the person who really had all the power broke bread and said, this is my body given for you. This is my power offered for you. This is my power spilled out on your behalf. Lord, if the world could really feel what your table means, it would restore a lot of hurt. Whether you're the weak and marginalized or you're in the power seat, this table brings everyone to the same spot. So Holy Spirit, fall on these gifts and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. Sanctify us also that we can eat this meal and when we leave here, we can be the world's advent when they need to know you're with them. We can be the world's Easter when they need to know you're for them. We could be the world's Pentecost when they need to know you're in them. And we could be the world's ordinary time when they need to know that you'll still work through them even after all the mistakes they've made. I pray that we would start to change from this Sunday on, that we would really start to change in this inexplicable thing called your table. The one meal you explicitly told us to keep coming to, I pray that Salem Tabernacle would be defined by what happens at this altar call. The altar call where we come on a bread line, where the rich among us and the poor among us all get on the same bread line. And are in need of the same, with the same need, your presence. We receive it together in the same measure. And we leave here tasked to offer it in the same fullness. I pray that something begins here starting today, Father God. In your holy name, the church said, amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. You're welcome to the table. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.